HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. This is our 10th anniversary here at Heritage Radio Network, so I encourage you to go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and become a member. Uh, There's some great new membership gifts, uh, limited edition enamel pins, a pizza logo on a pocket t-shirt, some great uh, bonbons and chocolates from Fine and Raw Chocolate, who's right around the corner here. We're going to be talking about chocolate today on the show. And uh, at the $500 gift level, you get the Chef's Choice Spice Selection from Burlap and Barrel. Uh, I can't say enough good things about Ethan and Burlap and Barrel. Their spices are amazing. So go check that out and support us here at Heritage Radio Network. Today's theme, chocolate is so much more than you think. I love chocolate. Dark, bitter, fruity, astringent, smoky. There's lots of great flavors in chocolate that for more than 98% of the chocolate made, we never get to taste them because the large chocolate makers are using industrial processes that remove or hide most of that flavor. 
Bite into a Hershey's Kiss and really try to taste it. There's not much there. I know, because I steal a few from my kids' Halloween candy every year, and I'm always disappointed. Since our bodies and brains crave the sugar, I keep going back. Maybe the Hershey's Dark will be better. It's not. Maybe the Baby Ruth will have something interesting in it. Nope. They're sweet and made from cacao and some added fillers, but they're nothing like the bean-to-bar chocolate that we now have available and that I encourage you to buy, taste, and savor. I remember the first time I tasted dandelion chocolate. It was a revelation of the incredible chocolate that, for me, sets the bar very high for any chocolate I now eat. It was clear from the get-go that when Todd Masanis started Dandelion, the quality of the end product was the number one thing on his mind. Not selling thousands or hundreds of thousands of bars, not getting on the O list, not winning awards or writing a cookbook, but to make really great chocolate and showcase the flavors and regions of this unique and very time and labor intensive food. Thanks, Todd, for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. So in preparation for this episode, I was looking back through some emails from 2013. Uh, at the Brooklyn Kitchen back then, our grocery buyer had come back from San Francisco with one of your chocolate bars and was raving about how great it was. We all tasted it, and we said, all right, this is a great product for the Brooklyn Kitchen. We want to sell it. And she reached out and was told, nope, sorry, we can't sell to you. And luckily for me, she persevered and I think got you guys to finally send us some bars on the East Coast. And we at the Brooklyn Kitchen were the first people on the East Coast to sell your chocolate. So thank you for letting us represent you here. Oh, well, thanks for carrying us. It's funny, at the time, we called our wholesale rep our customer disappointment manager, because all they did was (laughs) say no, said, no, sorry, you can't get our chocolate. (laughs) So uh, tell me about Dandelion Chocolate and how it got started. You got interested in chocolate and started making it in a garage. That's right. So I was always a chocolate lover, a chocolate enthusiast, but more in the Hershey's Kiss stage or the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Um, Growing up, I never had any really good chocolate. I think my first good chocolate was Scharfenberger, which is a company that we we feel very fondly of as kind of kicking off the new American chocolate revolution. Um, So I'd always loved chocolate, always um, loved desserts and those sorts of things. Um, And then for many years, I had a tech company uh, in Silicon Valley, and we sold that. And I ended up with a little bit of free time and a little bit of extra money and um, kind of was in the fortunate position where I could, you know, try different passions and learn. And I took classes and went on archaeological digs and just kind of like did, you know, kind of whatever interested me. And one of the things that I'd always been interested in was chocolate. And at the time, not really many people were trying to make chocolate at home. Hmm. I had actually seen online a... um, a uh, middle school student who had done uh, uh, a science fair project. Said, can you make chocolate at home? And I was like, man, if she can do it, then I can do it. And and so, and luckily around then there were a few websites like Chocolate Alchemy where um, people were sharing tips and tricks and learning about beans. And so started trying to make a little bit of chocolate at home. Um, and eventually uh, my friend Cameron and I, we took over another friend's garage and we built our own little DIY chocolate factory. Hmm. Um, and not like a sophisticated one. It's like we had a little toaster oven. We had like PVC pipes with duct tape and uh you know we needed to like you know vibrate the the nibs so we uh we went to like sharp image or brookstone got a vibrating massager and duct taped it and (laughs) you know it was just like totally just you know is this possible and so we started making chocolate and people started liking it and our friends and family said this is amazing i've never tasted flavors like these and you know we weren't intending to start a company we were just you know, is this possible? And then our friends and family said, hey, you should, you should do something with this. This is interesting. So we took our chocolate to the underground market, which doesn't exist anymore. Yep. It was a farmer's market for uh, non-permitted foods. Yep. Um, everyone had to sign a waiver saying they understood the, <laughs> the risks involved. And at the first market, we sold out and strangers liked our chocolate. And then we started winning awards. We won a good food award. And we're like, we're not 
legal. We're not set up. We're not in any way ready to, to be a company or sell our chocolate. But we just said, wow, there's something here. And, uh, and luckily now we know we're part of a much bigger movement. And yeah. It's the right timing. But at the time, it was just, let's see what happens with this. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Scharfenberger. I'd never really thought about it. I mean, about it. Is Scharfenberger like Haagen-Dazs, a company that was named to sound more European? No, no, no. It's actually, <laughs> there is a guy, John Scharfenberger. Um, no, no, it's a real thing. And I mean, they're, they were, I think, the real deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, they got bought by Hershey's yes. and that kind of changed yep. a lot of things. But um, I think it was a very inspirational company that kind of kicked off the new American chocolate revolution. Sure. Um, and in, in, in kind of the, you know, the new, I guess, the new American chocolate, uh, like, makers, um, you know, is there a lot of sharing of information about processes and sourcing and stuff, or do you keep a lot of that stuff kind of close? No, it's a super uh, collegial, um, happy uh, industry. Um, we, we all get together for events. Um, we share tips and tricks. We, uh, we build machines together. We, we, we help each other out. We source beans together. I remember the first container of beans we ever got. We got some makers together. Um, and I think the feeling is if someone finds our chocolate and learns about good non-industrial chocolate, craft chocolate, they'll probably try other people like right. Raka or Fruition. Or, yep. um, and, and so it's not like everyone fighting over one last customer. Yeah. It's more about educating the market against industrial chocolate. I feel like that's very very interesting and very different from the way it was in the past, right? I mean, certainly if you, you know, to like go to pop culture, right? Like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right. there's a whole bunch of stuff in there about like this, these warring factions of candy makers, right? I mean, that was the, that was like part of the backstory. Right. Well, this is the complete opposite of that. I mean, we've talked to some people who in other industries have gone through these transformations, whether it's wine or beer or coffee. And they kind of said the companies that seem to share information um, did better because yeah. they all banded together and they all learned from each other. And the people who super closed didn't sort of make it out the gate so we're kind of we're happy to be part of a really uh, collaborative movement was the name always dandelion or did you go through multiple names um we had a temporary name when we had to go to the first uh <laughs> the first farmer's market most people don't know this our friend's garage was on brower street in mountain view so we're just like the brower street chocolate factory and then we're like okay we need an actual name right. yeah so then then we came up with dandelion got it and and did dandelions as a plant have any relationship to chocolate or any personal significance you know, a lot of people, um, it's funny, some people think there are dandelions in the chocolate. We didn't, we didn't really consider that when we named it. But when we said, okay, we need a name, we went through the whole taxonomy. And we found is there's a lot of, um, a lot of adjectives, a lot of last names, a lot of French words, a lot of fake French words. <laughs> and, you know, we wanted just something really different. We just, we just thought of all the different names and we wanted one that was simple yet beautiful, that was sublime, that had childhood nostalgia, but also yep. it was kind of like an upstart or a weed, something that could persevere against all odds. And it just mm. kind of fit the, fit what we were trying to do, which was to kind of go up against industrial chocolate. Got it. Um, you grew up in Connecticut. That's right. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, like, was Hershey's it for you for, for chocolate or sweets? Like, did you always have a sweet tooth that went towards chocolate or did you like other kinds of candy? Um, I always had a sweet tooth, mostly around chocolate. Yeah. I actually did the, the 23andMe DNA test, and uh -huh. I have the sweet tooth gene. And, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, and I think my father <laughs> has it too. And um, no, so But it was definitely more industrial sort of candy, or we used to always go to Friendly's and get the peanut butter cup sundaes. Sure. So it was more just sort of that. Um, yeah. And even now, like, is it like Halloween, I'll get like a peanut butter cup, and it has, it's, it's nostalgic, and that's really sure. nice, but it's not it's not the same. Yeah, I feel like uh, I agree. Like it, it is always nostalgic. Peanut butter cups for sure for me are nostalgic, but I'm always kind of disappointed. Yeah. I'm always like, God, this could be so much better. 
I think the excitement of opening the wrapper is, 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 is then met by the disappointment of putting yeah. it in your mouth. Um, do you make any chocolates with any kind of inclusions or just chocolate? So we only make chocolate um, from, you know, from the bean. Um, that's kind of our, our specialty. Yeah. We have our, you know, our cafes where you know, we have pastries. Um, and we do a lot of collaborations with chocolatiers. Mm. So we consider ourselves to be a chocolate maker, not a chocolatier. So we consider ourselves to be someone who turns beans into chocolate, but we don't really turn chocolate into chocolates. Uh, That's kind of the distinction we use. And so, but we are friends with so many chocolatiers that we actually on our shelves have a lot of um, products made with our chocolate. Right. I want to talk a little bit about the the process of chocolate making. Um, I mean, I imagine people who are listening to Heritage Radio Network may have some idea, um, but it is incredibly labor intensive. Yes, for sure. I mean, you know, can you sort of take me through like the steps I have, you, you've brought me a a really, uh, a great sort of one sheet here, which has some nice illustrations about it. So it starts out with the beans, which are grown like any other agricultural product by a farmer. That's right. right? Yep. Yeah. They actually start in a pod. So if you see these pods, they almost look like little, little Nerf footballs. They grow right off the trunk of the tree. Yeah. And they can be all different shapes, sizes, and colors. There's lots of genetic diversity in cacao. When they're ripe, the farmer will cut them off the tree and cut them open. And when they open it up inside, they'll find, um, a white fruit. And, and in the white fruit are these really big seeds, the cocoa beans. Um, so when we're making chocolate, we're actually making chocolate from the seeds. Um, the fruit is kind of like a really delicious, but almost like, it's almost like a slimy layer outside the bean. And so the farmers, they'll, they'll, um, they'll take out the beans and the fruit. They'll put them in fermentation boxes. Uh, basically what happens is the yeast and the air starts to eat the fruit and create alcohol. Then the bacteria eats the alcohol, creates acid. That acid penetrates the bean, kills the bean, and starts to change the flavors in the bean. It actually mm. creates the flavor precursors. At this point, it won't really taste that good, but it's, it's starting to get where it needs to get to. Because, I mean, the way it was supposed to work in nature is, um, let's say an animal might open the pod, eat the fruit. The fruit is delicious. Bean is super bitter. They'd spit out the bean and kind of spread it that way. Got it. It's kind of interesting that anyone figured out how to make something delicious yeah. from the seeds. Which, right. Yeah, and it wouldn't. It's it's kind of like if you took an apple or some other fruit and you like threw out the fruit and then ground up the seeds. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the the farmers will ferment them. Um, it can be as unsophisticated as a hole in the ground with banana leaves over it, or you know the beans we buy. They have sophisticated setups with fermentation boxes and tiers, and um, in some cases thermocouples with you know the the curves. Um, but you know it's still pretty early days for fermentation for chocolate. Um, then they'll dry the beans. Um, that can also affect the flavor. Um, a more aggressive drying, you might end up with more fruity flavors or acid. You might have more more gentle drying. Um, but then they're put into burlap sacks um, and sent to us. So we get the beans, and then there's a whole series of steps that need to happen. And these are all steps you could actually do at home um, with just a, you know with a few extra tools. Um, anyone could make a great bar of chocolate at home, and we encourage that. Um, but basically what happens is you take out the beans, and the first thing you have to do is sort them. So you don't want to have any junk in there. There could be some rocks, or usually with good beans, you don't get a lot of that. But um, we recommend any little, um, little broken bean or any you know moth damage or mold just when in doubt just kind of throw it out just you know yeah. it's, it's not worth it um well i think you guys say on your site though that that you kind of go the extra mile as far as that among a lot of chocolate makers yeah and I'm, certainly and among like certainly industrial chocolate makers i assume are probably keeping everything in they possibly can well yeah i mean i, I would i'd like i mean it's funny the one time someone sent us a bag of uh, sort of commodity beans and we opened it up and we were horrified about what what uh <laughs> passes um but I think in our case, is, you know, when we make chocolate, it's only with two ingredients. And in some case, we, we have a 100% bar that is literally just ground up cocoa beans. So there's no place to hide. If there's, you know, <laughs> right. if there's an insect in there, or there's a little whatever. I mean, to be a chocolate bar in America, you only need 10% bean. 
So there isn't wow. any, yeah. And now most have more than that, but like yeah. but by that's law, ten percent. Yeah. So um, uh, there's not a lot of chocolate in chocolate traditionally, and so when you have that little that little chocolate, and you got not so great beans, and you you basically roast them to the point which you burn them, and you add tons of stuff to them, you know, you're not gonna taste it. Right. In our bars, like you're gonna taste it. So so we recommend if you're kind of doing this style, you know, sort through the beans, make sure they're perfect. Um, and then you have to roast them. And you could get a little coffee roaster or a big coffee roaster or an oven. Um, you roast them. Um, you know, we tend to go for a more aggressive roast or sort of a um, more aggressive flavors. So lighter roast where you're really tasting what's in the bean. If you go longer, you'll probably get a more kind of roasty chocolatey um, chocolate. Um, and then once you've roasted it, you have to take off the shell. Um, the, uh, the shell is just this little papery part on the outside. You could just, if you're doing it home, you could just like, you know, roll them in your fingers and peel them, or, you know, you can build a machine or buy a machine to take off the shell. But once you take off the shell, you end up with the nibs and the nibs are basically 100% chocolate. They're almost like a chocolate nut. Um, and then at that point you have to grind them. And so, um, we use a couple different techniques, but one is a melanger, um, you, you at home you could buy a mini melanger or wet dryer for yeah. Indian cooking and yep. you just you grind the chocolate for a couple days with sugar and you just run it just run it for a couple days just leave yeah. it alone let it just go yeah we have to give the disclaimer that like you shouldn't leave machines unattended and you know worry about you know but um but you need it to go that long for the smoothness of texture right yeah it just takes that long uh to to grind it and you wouldn't want to do it i'm assuming in something like a vitamix because it would heat it up right yeah i mean you can try that um and we've done a lot of experiments on all different ways of grinding and you can you can make sort of a rustic style chocolate at home with like a blender vitamix whatever that's possible but if you want a really smooth texture you're going to want the chocolate to be below about 30 microns in size Mm. and for that you really have to grind it continually the other thing that happens when you're using the melanger is you also develop the flavor so it's not just the texture and the refining the friction um, creates some heat, and the heat affects the vapor pressure, which affects which of the flavor volatiles get absorbed by the air. So you're, you're kind of like mellowing out the chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, adding some heat might not be bad for what you're trying to do, um, but it depends on what your style is and what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll put the chocolate in the melanger. After usually about three to five days, we'll have delicious chocolate. And if we're going to bake with it or make hot chocolate, it's totally fine as is. But chocolate is not naturally shelf-stable. So if I put it in a mold, oh, oh yeah, chocolate will start to bloom. Sure. Um, I've yeah. seen that happen. Yeah. yeah. And so that's just a textural thing. This is basically if you just take your chocolate, uh, let's say you leave it in a car and it gets super hot, and then you come back, it's all like white and gritty. What's happening there is the fat and non-fat parts will separate. Um, and so if you want to sell chocolate, you want it to look a certain way, then you have to temper it. You sort of have to heat, cool, and agitate it in a very particular way to cause enough seed crystals to form so that when you cool your chocolate, it crystallizes around that seed. Um. And this crystal structure, Form 5, is really nice in that it's um, super shiny, has a really nice snap when you when you break it. <laughs> um, it also has a great property that it will melt in your mouth, not in your hand. So tempered chocolate, you hold it, it's not going to melt. Um, and so, um, you know, you want to temper your chocolate bars. Um, it, it's interesting. There's actually a form of chocolate that if you go straight out of the laundry and keep it in the refrigerator, I think is one of the best tasting forms of chocolate. Um, it actually tastes like fudge, huh. um, but, but you have to keep it in the refrigerator right. so no one sells it like that. Right. But it's sort of like a, like a one or two ingredient fudge with no milk or butter huh. or anything. Um, so some, you, yeah, th- that can be really, really fun. But anyway, so you've got your chocolate bars and then you have to wrap them. We wrap it in gold foil and then in paper that we get handmade in India. And then we put our stickers on them. And so it's a whole bean to bar process. And very intense. I mean, so a couple things came up for me in listening to you describe that process. One, I am like 
it's mind boggling that anyone figured that out. Yeah. Step by step. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's not, I mean, and you didn't invent this process. Mm-mm. Someone else, I mean, it was figured out over time <laughs> previous <laughs> to that, but that's kind of amazingly intense. Um, also just the, you know, as I said in the, in the intro, just the, the sheer, uh, labor that goes into it, uh, especially making a product like yours. So you have these machines that are sitting, that have to be on and you can't do anything else with them in the process in that amount of time. Um, so it really is no wonder that you were telling everybody they couldn't buy your chocolate back in the old days, because it now is so clear to me that you really were so limited in production amount. So tell me a little bit. So then after the garage, you guys moved to your space in the mission. Yes, that's right. So we basically, we, we got out of the garage and we built a little spot on Valencia Street that is a small chocolate factory, but in the front we put a little cafe. Um, and so the chocolate factory, um, everyone can see what's happening. It's totally transparent. You can come in and just see what's happening. And um, we wanted a place where people would come and visit and um, enjoy chocolate in different forms, like hot chocolate and brownies. And that, um, it's funny, I actually, when we opened, I thought, you know, no one's going to come visit. It's just going to be the occasional visitor and the chocolate maker will go and like take off their apron and then go make a hot chocolate. Um, and so we built the cafe to be really, really small. And now like on a weekend, you like can't get in and it's, <laughs> it's very, very busy, which is great that it's, yeah. it's popular, um, but it definitely... Uh, it definitely surprised us um, that a lot of people were interested in our chocolate. And what we love about having a little cafe in front of the factory is that there are people who've come in just because they're interested in chocolate or peanut butter cups or, you know, whatever they've heard. Um, and then they'll stick around and they'll take a tour. We've had people go to Belize and Dominican Republic and Tanzania with us and are now chocolate experts and, um, you know, chocolate ambassadors that just came in because they like brownies. Right. Um, yeah. So we opened our Valencia Street spot and... Um, then, uh, a couple of years ago, we had an opportunity to get a much larger factory a much bigger building. And we spent the last four years trying to build it. Wow. And we finally built it. I do not recommend building chocolate factories in San Francisco. <laughs> um, even though San Francisco is a chocolate city, you know, it, yeah, has, yeah. Yeah, it has, you know, Guitard, yep. Giardelli, Cho, Scharfenberger, all these great companies. It's just, uh, it was kind of a nightmare, but we're finally open and it's kind of the next sort of chapter for Dandelion. Cool. But you still have the cafe and the smaller factory on Valencia as well? Yes, that's right. Got it. And we actually hope that over time we'll do even more sort of limited edition or smaller run bars. And, um, you know, we get a bag or two of beans and we do that there. And the larger factory, we can do a little bit more. Got it. And so what does your production look like now in terms of like volume? Like how, like, you know, how, how many, I guess, how many bars are you putting out, you know? Um, right now we're doing a, maybe a couple hundred thousand a year. Okay. Um, it's not, not huge. I think the new factory, the goal is obviously to make more chocolate yeah. and, um, but that's only one of the goals. Cause basically a couple of years ago we had a choice to make. We, um, we had the small factory, lots of people wanted to buy our chocolate and we just say no. And, uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. so one thought was like, we could just be a cool indie chocolate factory. And it's like, you know, a few people will get to try our chocolate or sure. sell or, everything we make. And that's that. sell everything yep. we make. And that's it. Or, um, you know, we thought, well, could we expand in a way that's true to our values? I mean, we didn't start the company to make money. Uh, obviously we need to make money cause it's not an art project and we need to support <laughs> the business and support the farmers and grow. But that was not the original intention. It was like to do something awesome. Um, and so we said, okay, well actually if we could get our chocolate in the more hands and more mouths of people, and they're eating our chocolate instead of industrial chocolate, that's a huge win. Yeah. So the question is, how do we do that in a way that is, you know, is true? And so um, that's what made this very difficult is we're trying to make more chocolate and we're trying to make it more efficiently, but we're also trying to make it taste better. 
Um, so we have done a process. We sent a bunch of team members to all around the world to try different machines where we did A-B tests. We actually bought a roaster and then got rid of it and bought another roaster. We've mm. swapped out a couple different machines a couple times, all in sort of this quest to, to do like actual blind taste tests to figure out what actually makes the best chocolate. And a lot of the steps in our process are very labor intensive. And there are some that really affect the flavor, like, you know, figuring out the, the best roast. But there are some that are just like, you know, someone standing there and, you know, can, can have like, you know, vibration injuries and not not great for the employees right. and so um, what we're trying to do is automate the steps that don't really affect the flavors and really get some sort of economies of scale with the pieces that don't need to be as hands-on right so we're trying to we're trying to expand in a way that um, is still really craft and true to our values yeah um, you guys use a wrapping machine that's not new right that's right it's an old machine yeah we have a 1950s auto hansel wrapping machine now i mean is that because there just wasn't anything new available that could do the job well you know it's funny so our our bars are wrapped in foil and paper that machine can wrap it in foil but we still hand foil every single bar Mm. we probably hand foiled over a million bars at this point um and the reason is we could not find a machine that would do what we want with the foil that we like. Huh. And everyone else said, you should go to flow wrapping or <laughs> right. just, you know, yeah. just do the single unwrap or who cares yeah, about yeah. this? Or, um, and we said, no, 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 we, we want to, we want this experience. And yeah. so we haven't compromised on that, but you know, we actually recently, we found a machine in Amsterdam that can ma- put the foil we like on our bars. And so now we're going to get that machine. And we're so excited because we're not like anti-technology. Sure. We're not anti-machinery. Like we came from the tech world. Um, it's just that we want to have the best experience and the best chocolate. And if we have to do that by hand, we'll do it by hand. If we can automate it, let's automate it. Um, but the goal is just best, best chocolate. Cool. That's awesome. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. And when we come back, uh, you've brought me some chocolate, and I think we should taste For some sure. chocolate and talk about it. And I also want to talk about your book, uh, which came out in 2017. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, in 2017. Uh, called Making Chocolate from Bean to Bar to S'more. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry, Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. If you're just tuning in, my guest today is Todd Masonis from Dandelion Chocolate in San Francisco. And we were talking about sort of how your chocolate is made. And so let's uh, let's taste some. Um, you've brought a whole variety today. Um, 
and I noticed that uh, like uh, you know, like people are used to seeing on wines, um, there's a year of the harvest. That's right. Here. Now, does that mean like the so some of these bars are 2016, some are 2018? Um, does that mean that say so for this bar, I'm looking at a 70 percent Hacienda Azul from Costa Rica. Were those beans from 2016 that were roasted more recently, or was this roasted and made into chocolate and then made into a bar more recently? Yeah, so those beans, we uh, are from the 2016 harvest from the farm. Yep. We actually like to buy our beans way in advance because we don't want to have to be in a compromised position when trying to work with various beans. Um, so we got our beans way in advance. And then these most of these bars were made like probably in the last month or so. Oh, okay. Yeah, wow. so it's, the harvest is really about the, the bean it. year. And so, you know, let's talk about percentages. So chocolates, uh, at least in the in the craft chocolate world are and bean to bar world are referred to by percentage. So I'm holding a couple of 70 percent here an 85 and a 100. What what's the what is the rest of the percent? If I'm holding a 70 percent, what's the other 30? OK, so for us, it's really easy because the, the rest is sugar. Um, but the truth about percentage is it's not regulated by anyone. Hmm. So you can write whatever you'd like on the package. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, we've actually joked we want to make a 110% bar, <laughs> where we put nibs in a 100% bar, and, um, and that would be awesome. Um, yeah. the, uh, but the convention that chocolate makers use is that the, the percentage is anything from the bean. But what gets really tricky is cocoa butter is fat that's extracted from cocoa beans. Right. So you could make a 70% bar that's 70% bean and 30% sugar, you could also make a 70% bar, which is 50% bean, 20% added fat, and 30% sugar. Got it. So you can't really go just by the percentage. You have yeah. to look at the ingredients and who's the maker and what's in there. Um, but in our case, because we're sort of like minimalists or purists, yeah. 70% is 70% beans, 30% sugar. And what's really fun about that is if you try a couple of our bars, the only difference you're tasting is the bean and sure. how you roasted it. You're not getting a difference in recipe or ingredients. It's just literally the beans. And then uh, for 85, you know, it's 85% bean, 50% sugar. Yep. And our 100% bar is pretty unique because it is just literally ground up cocoa beans. It is a one ingredient bar. Um, and, you know, that was really hard to find a bean that could work at that percentage um, without other added things to it. Um, so it's, it, maybe that bar is not for everyone, but the people who really like it buy it by the, the caseload. And I see that that's the same, uh, same bean, same harvest as the 85%. That's right. Yeah, we kind of, um, for that, we use the Camino Verde Ecuador, which um, at 70%, it's actually very difficult for us to temper, um, but it's just a very chocolatey chocolate. Um, so at the higher percentages, it's still very, uh, very good. So tell me, I mean, so let's taste these. So tell me about like, should, is there one that we should start with? I think, well, let's do the 70s okay. um, and let's go of those three. Why don't we start with the Ecuador, the Esmeraldas? Cool. Except I think, is that the Belize? Uh, that's the Costa Esmeralda. Oh, no, you got it. Okay, okay, sorry. Yep, okay. All right, so I'm opening it up. <laughs> uh, it is, I have always found it to be really fun opening your packaging because of the gold foil. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, it is really, like, the gold foil is really nice. Um, all right, so. Thank you. Do you ever get tired of tasting chocolate? No, not really. <laughs> So the only thing I'd say about tasting chocolate, because people ask us all the time, is mm -hmm. we're not really snobs about it. Like, I think, you know, you should put it in your mouth, and if you like it, that's mm -hmm. good, or maybe you don't like it. Um, the only thing I'd say is it's nice to take a couple bites and then let it melt. Some of the flavor notes come out after 15, 20 seconds. So if it, you've swallowed it in five, you know, you're going to miss half the bar. So yeah. that's the only thing I'd say. 
what I'm reminded of from when I tasted dandelion back many years ago is the texture. Mm-hmm. Incredibly smooth of texture, and I guess that's from the three to five days of just mixing. Yeah, and I'd say that we we tend to have a, a slightly drier texture than most. We mm. don't have um we don't have added cocoa butter. So like a lot of European bars, like a Euro bar would be like lots of cocoa butter and a heavier roast. You get that really like super like buttery flavor where right. us it just it feels like a little bit lighter. Um yeah. Moving on, what should we taste next? Um let's do the Costa Rica. And I think with these, it's really fun to try to try one and then try the next one and try to see if you can taste any difference in flavor notes. Um, I think it can be difficult to pick out the notes, but sure. if you try things back to back, you can definitely say like, oh, I taste a difference or I like this one better or I like what this one. There's uh, definitely an aesthetic difference. This one is a lighter color. Yeah. And so that's just from the beans. So some beans yeah. are naturally lighter and they, they show up differently. This one tastes almost smoky. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. The, like slightly smoky hammy note. I, at some point, I had some chocolate that was roasted on wood. And I thought oh, that yeah? was really interesting. Mm-mm. It definitely, I mean, it tasted more like very smoky. Like this is very lightly smoky. Right, right. But it tasted like campfire smoky. Yeah. We had some beans from Papua New Guinea that um, were uh, dried, kind of like smoke dried. Mm. And they were just like super smoky. And for a long time, we used those in our s'more. So that, ah. that, that, sm- that, that smoky flavor kind of showed up, but it wasn't, it was more from the bean. Got it. Um, are there any places, I mean, so cacao grows around the equator. Yep. There's a lot of places in this world around the equator, which are perhaps not the most uh, politically stable. That's right. Um, are there any places that you have either been able to source from in the past that you can't anymore, or places you'd like to source from that are just difficult because of the geo, the you know, sort of the politics of it? Um, the big one right now is Venezuela. Hmm. We had some Venezuelan beans that we loved. Um, we had team members go down to Venezuela a couple times. Um, we worked with one uh, female-owned co-op. Thank you. Um, this co-op called Montuano that was awesome. But now the political situation and it's so dangerous. And for us, we want to visit all of the farms and continually have relationships. Right. And so um, that's just that's not an option anymore. It's funny. So we make it a point to visit every single farm that we work with. And I think and it's usually Greg, who's our chief sourcing officer, our, our, our chocolate sorcerer, we call him. Um, and so I think he's been basically to every farm except for a while we had beans from Liberia. And uh, he was going to go visit, but it was when Ebola broke out. Oh, and he was like, you know, I like chocolate and I like dandelion, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not getting Ebola. <laughs> um, so that's, but otherwise, we, we make it a point to, to know who we work with. Got it. I'm now tasting this one from Belize. This one is much brighter. Yeah, you get some flavor. fruit notes. Definitely yeah. some fruit. Yeah. Yeah, this one's interesting because, you know, with the harvest, um, you know, the beans will taste kind of similar year to year, but they'll definitely change. And rather than try to make them the same every year, we just say, this is what we got this year. Um, if you like last year's harvest, like, sorry, like it's just like wine. Um, and I think the Belize over time has gotten fruitier and fruitier and, hmm. and more interesting. I mean, I, I like that idea. I think that um, too often, and I think this is sort of like the downfall of places like Hershey's is that they want them all to be the same. Right. right. And they make a big deal out of that. Right. That like every Hershey's bar you get is going to be exactly the same. But I don't think people notice. I do not think that I, who have spent a lot of time in my life tasting things and talking about flavor, would notice the like, you know, would it be able to identify like if I taste this bar 
from Belize in two years, I might remember that I liked the Belize and that it was bright and fruity. Right. Would I be able to compare in my brain what I tasted two years ago with something tasting today? No, I do not believe that that's possible. No, I don't. I mean, and I think it's, uh, that's why we always try to things side by side, back yeah. to back. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, but I know I like it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if somebody maybe they like every day, they always get the Madagascar bar and then it, it switches, they might notice a difference, but yeah. you have to really be paying attention. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your book. Sure. So our book came out at the end of 2017. Um, and we actually wrote the book in basically three parts because um, there was a lot we wanted to cover and we wanted it to be kind of more like a timeless book that um, hopefully becomes kind of like a reference manual for people trying to make chocolate at home or mm. start their own chocolate companies. So the first part um, was the part that I spearheaded, which is all just kind of about the history and how to make chocolate at home. So like if you want to get a hairdryer and, uh, you know, get out your, your toaster, um, you can make chocolate at home and you can make a great bar of chocolate at home um, without a lot of uh, added expense. Maybe the only thing you'd have to buy is a mini melanger. That's like $200 off of Amazon. I've been thinking about buying one of those actually for making uh, dosa. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. And you can make... Uh, <laughs> Maybe can, I'll start making chocolate at home well, when I get You it. can make an awesome like homemade Nutella. And if you look at the ingredients of Nutella, it's like all palm oil and sugar. Instead, it's yeah. like take some chocolate and some hazelnuts and you'll, and you'll have awesome Nutella. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So the first part is all about, um, uh, you know, making chocolate at home. The next part is Greg's part, where he really talked a lot about the sourcing and a few of the farms we worked with and what's going on with the beans and, you know, even about our sugar and labor practices. Um, and then toward, and there's a little section on sort of scaling up um, if you're starting your own company. And then uh, the, the last part was Lisa's part. Lisa's our pastry chef. And um, her part is all about working with chocolate. And what's interesting is there are lots and lots of books on working with chocolate. But um, when Lisa came into the company, she had to forget everything she had learned because our chocolate is so different than industrial chocolate and there's no cocoa powder. It's actual chocolate. They had, you know, they have one recipe in there, the celebration cake, where they called it the celebration cake because they, they worked forever trying to make a cake that tasted like a, you know, like a devil's food sort of, you know, chocolate cake. And when they finally figured it out after years, they sort of celebrated. So um, <laughs> our, our hope is that like, let's say you make chocolate at home and then you try it in a normal recipe and it doesn't work. Instead, these are all recipes that should work with kind of craft to ingredient sort of more special chocolate. Got it. Got it. I mean, so I want to talk a little bit about the farms that you work with. Um, you know, I assume that before you came along, these families and these people were growing cacao. Mm -hmm. Who were they selling to before? So most of the world's chocolate is sort of bulk commodity chocolate. Um, and there's a lot of talk about like fair trade and getting better prices. But I think the world price right now I'd have to look it up, but I think it's around like 2000 a ton. And so when people are talking about paying a lot for chocolate, they're talking about like, oh, maybe they paid an extra $200 per ton. So when we buy chocolate, I think our average we paid last year was about 6000 Wow. So like six to $8,000. we are actually looking at some beans right now that are 20000 a ton. Holy moly. And so, and for that, we might have like a $20 bar or something. Sure. But so we're, we're kind of almost completely separate and decoupled from the normal bulk industry. Um, and so we're looking for better genetics, better flavor, better, um, uh, better labor practices. But in a lot of these places, what they've actually done, um, there's been a lot of great work, especially in Belize and Maya Mountain um, or in Tanzania with Coco Camille, um, of making centralized fermentaries. So if you had to buy from all these tiny smallholder uh, farms, you know, a bag here, a bag here, like you really couldn't make it work for somebody like us or another small maker. Sure. They wouldn't be consistent enough, the high, high enough quality. So instead, these centralized producers 
uh, or centralized fermentaries, they'll go around to the communities and collect all the wet beans. And then they'll ferment them together and grade them together and they have access to the market. Or I know that when Coco Camille started at first, um, you know, we had some suggestions for their fermentation. And we had a friend who was a fermentation expert at the University of Hawaii, Dan O'Doherty. And he went out there with his thermocouples and helped them make a much better fermentation process. And then they had much better beans and they could work on uh, in getting into more in more hands. And so um, there's a lot of potentially really great beans out there that right now are just bulk commodity beans. Mm. And so, um, you know, there's all this talk about, are we going to run out of chocolate, global warming, like what's going to happen? Um, there are so many farmers out there that would love to, instead of, you know, not being able to survive, could sell their beans for four, five, ten times. So right. I think this type of chocolate will be just fine. Right. I think it's the the bulk commodity stuff that's Sure, because, at, right, at a certain point, if they have to raise their prices, right, and they've, I mean... You know, the I, I read somewhere I forget what the actual statistic was, but I mean the the cost of candy has sort of like maintained almost very similarly for many 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 years. I mean, at a, you know, I think when it was first released, the Baby Ruth was like five cents. Oh wow, yeah. You know, but that was you know a hundred years ago. Right, right, right. And so, like, if you look at inflation, like, I think it's about the same price. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and if you look at the uh, the cost for cocoa beans ingested for inflation, it's actually gone way down since the 70s. I mean, in terms of what the farmers make, I mean, right. I think that that industry got so industrialized and so optimized where there isn't any actual money for the farmers. Right. Um, and so it's really nice to be part of the other side where it's about good beans and it's not about consistency and low cost. It's about doing the right things and, and getting the good flavors and respecting the bean. Cool. Now I'm going to taste the the Camino Verde Ecuador. Okay. Eighty five percent. Yep. So that's eighty five. So that'll be somewhat chocolatey, but you know, higher percentage. Um, so a little bit more, uh, a little stronger. Um, a lot of people on like you know keto diets or you know will uh, <laughs> like like that. And the, I mean, like the are people who are like, well, it's only fifteen percent tr- sugar, so we're okay. Right. Right. <laughs> and then there's the hundred percent, which yeah. we definitely recommend for for that. It definitely is not as I expected, like bitterness. Mm. Like I always, you know, I guess I, in my brain, I equate a higher percentage with more bitterness. Right. There's definitely like an astringency on the tongue, but it's not bitterness. It's not crazy bitter. Yeah. No. It's just more, um, that's the actual cocoa bean. Right. Yeah. And tell me about your sugar. What kind of sugar do you guys use? So we use sugar from Brazil. <clears throat> it's actually from uh, the largest organic project in the world. Uh, you know, when we first started and we were in the garage, we kind of just go to like Costco and like C&H. And then at some point we're like, you know, we spent all this time sourcing the world's best beans. <laughs> right. But 30% of our product is <clears throat> is sugar. Like we should definitely do everything right here. So we went on a big search to figure out who was who and what are the right practices. And Greg visited a bunch of farms. And then we found this one in Brazil that had great practices and makes great sugar. And we also wanted to find a sugar that didn't have a lot of flavor on its own. Um, there are some sugars that kind of had their own flavor notes. And then if we're trying to highlight everything in the bean, but the, shav- the, the sugar is super, um, um, sh- super distinctive, that would kind of take away from it. Mm. The other thing I should mention about our sugar, it's actually vegan. So a lot of people don't huh. realize that most sugar is not vegan. So I apologize to anyone who's listening who's vegan, not realizing that it's not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, most um, sugar in America is, is bleached with bone char. Uh, uh, so if you see like super white sugar, like yeah. generally that's like that. So our sugar is just sort of much more naturally processed. Wow. The hundred percent is very intense. It's very intense. It's very intense. But I mean, I feel like it's like the espresso of chocolate. 
Yeah, I think it's definitely a love it or hate it. Um, a lot of people try it and they're just like, wow, this is way too strong. And then the people who uh, really like super dark chocolate or don't want to have any sugar or mm-hmm. want just like a super clean, uh, a super clean food, um, like literally will buy cases of it. It's very intense. I, I can't imagine having a case. Like, I feel like one bar, I feel like I could eat like one square a day. Yeah, I think I you feel like <laughs> work up to it. I actually, it's nice to like use as a spoon and peanut butter. I actually, I've, mm. I'm trying to, uh, we're working on kind of like a two ingredient peanut butter cup. Oh, nice. Um, just like literally cocoa beans and peanuts just as like an intellectual exercise. Sure. And I feel like that's kind of like, you know, that, that'd be kind of interesting. I mean, that's a good segue. So, you know, it feels to me like having watched, you know, Dandelion sort of evolve um you know it feels like it is in a place where uh you know it's not a startup anymore mm-hmm. right it's like a you know it is it is a, a company where you guys you know you, you wrote a book that's meant to be sort of timeless to help other people if they want to get into this if they want to make it at home you have your your sourcing you have the way that you do things you have the way that you produce your chocolate um you have the farm relationships that you're working with and you know to me it feels like it's a very whole thing mm. Do you feel like Dandelion is like a finished project and you might move on to something else after this? I mean, you had a different, you know, you had a different career before Dandelion. Um, or do you feel like Dandelion has more to do or, you know, do you just absolutely love being in the chocolate world? Uh, well, I love being in the chocolate world, but I also, I mean, maybe on the outside it seems like finished, but I look every day at how much more we could do and sure. should do. And it's like, I feel like we're just barely getting started. Yeah. I mean, I feel like... You know, we don't really think about competition, um, but when we do think about other companies, most of the other people we'd consider to be competitors have been around at least 100 to 150 years. So in, from that <laughs> sure. regard, we're just like, uh, we are just barely started. And we, we are trying to create a company that could last for 100, 150 years, you know, trying to do everything right. And I mean, it, it's funny. I think chocolate is one of the things where, you know, we didn't start it as a business, but like chocolate is a multi-billion dollar market that hasn't been disrupted in forever. And the market for people going to the gas station to buy the $2 chocolate bar like that's disappearing and chocolate can be so much more. It can have more flavor complexity than wine or coffee. And for the last 50 years, that was a mistake. That was something to be destroyed. And so I feel like, you know, for us, it's just about doing the right things and educating people. Because I feel like when people learn about good chocolate, whether they buy our chocolate or someone else in this sort of new movement, um, it'd just be, be better for everyone involved. Awesome. Well, thanks, Todd, so much for making time on your trip to New York to sit down with me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You should definitely check out Dandelion Chocolate if you are in San Francisco. Their cafe and their factory on Valencia are awesome. Is there a? Can people visit the new factory? They sure can. We have tours. We have classes. We have a little cafe. And now we have a chocolate salon. Awesome. I'll definitely be by the next time I'm in San Francisco. Uh, You can follow them on Instagram at dandelionchocolate and dandelionchocolate.com for all of your chocolate needs. If you don't find dandelion chocolate in your local store, what should you do? You should order online. We actually have free shipping at no minimum. Just you want a chocolate bar, just go and order it. We'll send it to you. Awesome. Well, everybody should definitely go check that out. Please take a moment to rate and review the show if you liked it or even if you didn't. And reach out to me if you have any questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks 
for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.